A couple weeks ago, Ravi Zacharias died. He was a profound and brilliant and eloquent Bible teacher and apologist who had a great impact on my life uh, personally. I know on many others as well. And I would listen to him a lot when I would deliver pizzas back in the day. And he also just seemed like an immensely likable and pleasant man. I can't wait to meet him one day and, and thank him for his ministry and faithfulness. And over these two weeks since he's passed, I've been rereading some of his books that I've loved and learned from and just kind of reminiscing and uh, thanking God for him. And this one passage he wrote really resonated with the scripture I've been meditating on as I've prepared to preach today. Ravi told the story of his son when he was about three years old and about how he would uh, he was playing with this helium-filled balloon. He would let it go, and it would float to the, to the ceiling in the living room, and he'd get up on the love seat and grab it and pull it back down, and he would do that over and over again until he finally wanted to try it outside, where, of course, he found it didn't stop, and there was no sofa to climb on to get it back, and he started crying, and Robbie came outside, and when he saw his dad, he said, I know what, Daddy, next time you're on the airplane, you can get it back for me. And he says he was optimistic, but the reality was changing. Some things can be lost. I was his only hope to get it back. He says, in the midst of change and transformation, we realize that the older we get, the more we need somebody bigger than ourselves to restore what we have lost. There's a scene from the Narnia Chronicles where Lucy comes face to face with Aslan and he says, welcome child. Aslan, says Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. In that uh, same chapter, Ravi wrote in his book that God has promised that when we find him, it is not that everything around us has changed, but that we have become new. The old way of looking at things is gone. It is not that there are no more disappointments, but that we look at them differently. It's not that there are no more temptations, but that we respond to them differently. It's not that nothing is ever lost, but that we don't hold on to things the same way. It's not that nothing is ever new, but that we receive it with a different perspective. The more we mature in our thinking, the bigger God looks to us because it is we who need to grow, not he. And this radically new perspective that he talks about, I want to talk about that this morning as well, where God is the biggest thing in our view. And this fundamentally changes our perspective on life our perspective on our sins and on our righteousness, on our losses and our gains, our shame and our confidence, our hopes and our priorities on everything. This is what happened to Paul, the apostle, when he was gripped by God in Christ. He looked at his whole life differently because of the surpassing worth, he says, of Christ and knowing him. It surpassed everything and it changed everything. This is what must happen to all of us whom Christ makes his own. We recognize his supremacy and it changes everything. 
So let's read this passage in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and in these various places where we are. And Holy Spirit, give us ears now to hear and hearts to believe. And Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. This text is so powerful and meaningful to me. Uh, I remember when I was a brand new Christian, and I had just had my world turned upside down, and I had this new passion in life, knowing Jesus. And I'd been gripped by his grace, and my life would never be the same. And someone said to me, who knew me and, and saw what was happening to me with well-meaning concern, they said, you don't have to only read the Bible. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean it has to totally consume your whole life. And I looked at them, and I never verbalized it like this before at this point, but I said, if this is true, it's the most important thing in the world. Nothing else even comes close and it's not just young Jay who thinks that way. This is the way all true Christians start to think when they've really been gripped by the enormity of who Christ is and what he has done. We start to think in this either or way, right? Either there is a God and he's the only thing that matters or there is no God and nothing really matters. If God is, he is what matters most. He is the all-important reality. A casual religious observance is over. There is no, there's this, this new f uh, form and substance and aim to your life when you're gripped by this. Paul in this passage is such a clear example of this passionate pursuit that marks the authentic Christian. Some, some of you may be thinking even, even already that the way I'm talking sounds fanatical or extreme. 
And your minds are already going to to the zealous religious folks who are overbearing and self-righteous. But don't you see that that's exactly what Paul is contrasting here. He's saying he used to be that way, but now he's been overtaken by something completely different and yet even more all-consuming. This new whole life passion for Jesus is the exact opposite of the self-righteousness that turns us away and turns us off. And we'll see that when the, the person of Jesus is the driving force in a person's life, it leads to a passion that is expressed in radical humility and love and joy. Because I, I would argue that the fanatics you don't like are the ones who are selective or unbalanced fanatics, right? They may be fanatical about a few things, but they're not uh, fanatics about love and patience and joy the way Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus are. These men completely redirected their entire life through the gospel. The gospel completely reorients everything when it's rightly understood. It reshapes how we view everything. It's like C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. A Christian is not someone who just adds knowledge or even just applies knowledge. It's someone for whom everything becomes new in the light of day. Everything in your life is viewed anew through the light of Jesus Christ. But also, of course, when the sun comes up in that analogy, you can't see the stars anymore. That's what Paul's talking about when he mentions the surpassing worth of Christ. It surpasses all else, the things which used to shine so brightly in our eyes. Paul says he can't see them anymore because Christ is too bright. Something so brilliant that all the things that used to control me and drive me and captivate me no longer have any influence or sway over me. He says those things that were my pride and they were my glory and my greatest ambition, they have been eclipsed by something far greater. And the most important place for this new perspective to take hold in our life is in the realm of righteousness. And that's the key shift that Paul is, is talking about in his life that he's trying to communicate in this passage. Is he, he gives his spiritual resume, if you will, this impressive list of credentials, which he said he wants boasted in. They were his confidence. And, and he says now, though, he considers them as, as garbage. They're actually disgusting to him now. And more than just not being helpful, they were actually getting in the way. And he talks about his religious and, and racial purity as a part, of, a part of that, right? He says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying he wasn't a convert. He's been a Jew from birth, born into a noble tribe. He hasn't been influenced by Greek culture, hasn't been Hellenized like other Jews. He's been a, a, only influenced by Hebrew culture. And then he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So he's kept all the rules. And he's had high educational attainments. He's even been an activist in his movement. So this is his religious resume. 
you see? And it's a good one, if you could have one. And it was his righteousness. It was where he found his confidence that he was a good person. It was what he boasted in. And so your righteousness is what you place your confidence in, what you boast in, what makes you able to look at yourself in the mirror, what you think about when you face criticism, right? Because if, when you're criticized, if you feel like you are living up to your righteousness, well, then you'll say, well, what do they know? I'm a good person. Or if you feel like you're not living up to your righteousness, you will hate yourself when criticized or you'll hate that person or both. What makes your self-worth rise and fall? The pastor Tim Keller talked about how him and his wife realized this was a bit different for each of them because when, when something would be going on with his church, uh, he would get all shaken up and his wife would seem really mature and say, well, we have to trust God. And then when something would happen with the kids, uh, his wife would get all shaken up and he would seem more mature and say, you know, we have to trust God. And he, 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 they seem more mature in different situations or immature, but he, his point was that his church was on his spiritual resume, if you will, and the kids were on hers. Everyone has a slightly different set of these things, but we all seek to earn our own righteousness. All of us form a resume by which we seek to face the world and face ourselves and face God. And you know that you're you're. When you're doing that, you're recognizing that you're naked and you're trying to clothe yourself with your righteousness. You're covering yourself. You're saying, this is why you should accept me. But the dirty secret is that this is just us trying to con keep control of our lives and trying to be our own saviors. I've talked with so many people who just have this kind of ambiguous and and even arbitrary righteousness, where they say, oh, I'm a good person, right? And I, so I you know, do more good than bad. So I think God honors that. But Paul would say, I thought the same way. And I had a way more impressive spiritual resume than you do. Trust me. But I had to learn to repent of my own righteousness. Not just turning away from doing bad things, of course you do that, but also turning away from doing good things for the wrong reasons, out of the wrong heart and the wrong motivation. We, we often use our good deeds to manipulate or, or control God, to put him in our debt. You know, we, we try to relate to him like we do the government. You know, I paid my taxes, now pave the streets or something. But this is a destructive way to have a relationship. And it does not please God. In the show Gilmore Girls, yeah, I watch Gilmore Girls, don't judge me. Lorelai and her mother Emily have this toxic relationship. They, Emily will, will, sure, she'll do a lot of things and good things for, for Lorelai, but always with strings attached. Always attempting to manipulate her and control the relationship. Often bringing up the things that she has done with entitled expectation. 
And we, and we can see how toxic that relationship is and unhealthy. And that is how we act when we try to put God in our debt with our pathetic self-righteousness. Another way our self-righteousness is twisted is that often we, we boast in what we think are, are good deeds, doing them for the approval of others or even the approval of ourselves rather than God alone. And to him, this is adulterous idolatry. Let me illustrate. Because if a woman asks her husband to shave and he happily complies, right? But the whole time he's shaving, he's thinking in his mind about how the beautiful new secretary at work mentioned the other day how she loves a clean-shaven man. Then when he comes out of that bathroom with his new face, his wife may smile and be happy and rub his cheek. But would she be so happy if she knew his heart? I don't think so. She'd be disgusted and hurt because his act was compliant on the surface, but underneath was adulterous. And God is disgusted and hurt when we do good for the approval of man and, and self rather than out of love for him because he can see our heart. And also, it's, it's just such a... A shame that our first inclination when being shown how wrong or sinful we are, our first inclination is to dig our heels in and white knuckle our, our position and hold on and cling to our righteousness. Because the Bible tells us, th this is such a shame because the Bible tells us that true blessedness is to know that we need to be forgiven and also to know that we have that forgiveness. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But this blessing, is, it requires us recognizing, right, that we're flawed. True flourishing and joy comes through, not through pretending that you're good enough and that you have it all together, but by recognizing that you're deeply flawed and that you failed to live up to who God made you to be and that you need forgiveness, but also that you have that forgiveness in Christ. That's true blessedness and flourishing. That brings confidence and freedom and joy. Far more than clinging to your own pathetic rightness or goodness. In this Philippians 3 passage, Paul is saying that he was using his religion to be his own savior, and it obscured the real savior. But when he came to know that real savior, then he realized the only resume worth having is that which God gives him. We must recognize along with Paul that we, God doesn't owe us anything because as much as we've tried to live a good life, we've never achieved it. And deep down in our hearts, we know that. We must repent of our sins, but also of our righteousness. And when we do that, we can receive his righteousness, which is the only true righteousness. The righteousness that is not my own, Paul says, but the righteousness that comes from God and depends on faith. The righteousness that comes when you're found in Christ. A resume is what gets you in to places, right? 
It, it, if it's good enough, it gets you in. But the only resume good enough to get you in is the resume of someone else. And the beauty of the gospel is that God welcomes you in while giving you that resume. And as a Christian, a Christian is one who, who's, who simply is humble and humbled to receive that, who humbly receives that free gift of that righteousness of Christ. We can trust in Christ's righteousness alone. God looks at you in Christ and he loves you as his son when you are trusting in his righteousness. This is the thing that's so important. Paul calls this elsewhere the breastplate of righteousness. It it protects us. It gives us boldness and confidence. If you put on Christ and put on his righteousness and rejoice in being found in him, well, then shame and criticism and loss and conflict and failure and success, they, they all lose their power over you that they once had. Because you don't presume to stand before God in your own righteousness. What makes you worthy is Jesus Christ, your Savior. And this changes how we relate to other people as well. Right? And how we view other people because living in your own righteousness, it poisons relationships. It's what makes us despise one another. I mean, just look at political discourse. The liberals and the conservatives, they don't just think one another's wrong. They hate each other. They think they're better than each other. Superior. In your own righteousness, when you encounter someone that you feel is less than you, you look down on them. When you encounter someone you think is better than you, you're intimidated by them and shrunk by them. You feel small or bitter or desperate for their approval. But as a Christian, living in Christ's righteousness as a, as a gift of sheer grace, well then, those who seem inferior, you don't despise them or look down on them because you recognize you are only in the position you are in by God's grace. And those who are better than you, you're not intimidated or shrunk by them, nor desperate for their approval because you find your worth and value and confidence in Christ and his righteousness, which he freely gives to you. See, living in your own righteousness, it just makes you incredibly self-centered. Everyone is viewed through, your, through the lens of your story and you and your righteousness. But living for Christ, it frees you up to, to love, to truly love. Uh, we see this in the last chapter. Uh, I want to take us there in a minute. The, we see this, this love, this, this freedom, beautifully illustrated through these men in chapter two, uh, uh, the last half of chapter two of Philippians. We kind of skipped over that, so I wanted to look at their example today and, uh, because they embody the, the freedom and the humility that comes through God's grace and living in that. The three men are, are Paul, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. So turn back to chapter two with me uh, and and let's look at each of these briefly. In verses 17 and 18, uh, we see the example of Paul. He says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
He didn't, he didn't think himself better than them because he's a great apostle. Instead, he recognized that it is only by, by the grace of God that he is who he is. And so he's willing to pour out his life for their faith. His whole life as an offering of God to God for them. Paul's life was marked by this, this giving himself away to others, but it was also marked by joy. He even says it right here. He says, if I'm going to be poured out, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And these, these two things are not disconnected. They are intimately connected. Paul's pouring out his life for the faith of others and his great joy. Because when we live out of our acceptance, rather than striving for acceptance, well, we have more to give and we experience greater joy. So that's Paul, but we also see Timothy in verses 19 through, through 22. Paul says this of Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. See, Paul says, I have no one like Timothy because everyone else is seeking their own interests, but not Timothy. He seeks the interest of Jesus Christ. Timothy is loyal to Paul and, and authentic in his compassion for others. And he, he sought the interests of Jesus above all. And that's what led to that. See, Timothy wasn't concerned about his own interests or advancing himself, even in the midst of a competitive environment where Paul says his peers are all doing that. They're all looking out for themselves. But Paul, Timothy wasn't sucked in to that because he was living out of Christ's righteousness. And finally, we see the example of Epaphroditus. I love this guy. Uh, look at verses 25 through 30. I'll, I'm going I'm to skip a little bit in the middle, but it says this. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is a humble, other-centered, servant-hearted man. He risked his life to serve Paul and, and, and his work to advance the gospel. But my favorite part about him is, is that part in verse 26 where he says, for he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So he's not distressed because he was ill, like most of us would be. He, instead, he was distressed because they heard that he was ill. Most of us are distressed if our friends have not heard that we are ill because we want their sympathy, right? But not Epaphroditus. He was distressed because they heard that he was ill. He didn't want them to be worried or afraid for him. He was looking after their interests. You see, I pray that we would follow the, the example of Epaphroditus and the example of Timothy and Paul 
But, but if we do in this, this way of life, this life of love and of faith, it emerges out of, of, out of the gift of Christ's righteousness alone. If you try to be like these men in order to gain man's approval or in order to gain God's approval, you may succeed in the former, but you definitely won't succeed in the latter. And either way, you will wear yourself out and, and weary your soul. And so let me end with a hymn that point, puts it so well. It says this, Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. So cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him. In him alone. Gloriously complete. Let's pray. Lord, let us lay our deadly doing down at your feet and rest in your righteousness alone. Give us grace to repent of our self-righteousness and grace to live in your son's same love. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.